Father, we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would make us attentive, O oh God, to your voice. Father, we walk into this room from all different places today. Some of us come in and we feel joy and gratitude and we've just had a great weekend and we're thankful for the weather and for the kids. And, and some of us come in and, and we're just feeling low and we've received devastating news or we're stressed or we're anxious. And some of us, we can't even believe we're sitting in church today. But I pray, God, that wherever you might find us today, that you would meet us, that you would speak to us, and that you would take us to where you want us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. So if you're joining us for the first time today, we have been in a series entitled Rhythms over the last couple of weeks, and today we're going to talk about the rhythm of financial generosity. And uh, so, um, so I, I want to ask you to do something. If, if you were here a few years ago, I think we did this uh, as a little exercise in the beginning before. Um, but I saw another pastor named John Ortberg invite his congregation to do this. And I thought it was good. I thought it was helpful. So uh, what I want to invite you to do right now is just pull out your wallet or maybe your form of payment, if it's Apple Pay or whatever, just pull it out and hold it in your hand. And if you want, you can caress it. <laughs> so what you are holding in your hand right now is the temple of the 21st century. It is where so many of us worship and where we are tempted to find our identity and our worth and our dignity and our value based upon how much access we have to the resources uh, that might, our, our wallets might represent. But you know, in the kingdom of God, money is a real trust issue. And so just as an act of trust, I want to just invite you, uh, if you're willing to do this, just go ahead and, and hand your wallet to the person sitting next to you. <laughs> now what we're going to do is I want to take an offering. And I want you to give like you've always dreamed of giving, you know? <laughs> you can give it back. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of different angles we could take on the issue of financial generosity. You know, we could talk together about how when we give more of our money and our resources away, it's just good for the poor, for those underprivileged and under-resourced communities around us. And of course, we inhabit a world that is marked by a gross disparity of wealth between the haves and the have-nots, between the rich and the poor. And I think a lot of us who live in more affluence would do well to ask that very challenging question, what does it mean to be a Christian, a rich Christian in an age of hunger? And I know some of you might think, well, you know, giving to the poor is not always a good thing because what about systems of dependence and, and what about when helping hurts, you know, and, and aren't we just going to enable people? But, but listen, if you have studied the issue of generous giving to the poor at any length or in any depth, what you discover very quickly is that there is no shortage of incredibly good and powerful and important places that you can actually put your money and it does real good to people who are in extreme need. 
In fact, uh, over the last uh, year, our young adults group has been collecting, they've been doing a weekly collection. And I think last year they collected together in the young adult group $6,000, which good job, young adults. You guys are awesome. That's, that's really cool. And the organization they gave to works to relieve medical debt. And over the last year, and they, they do it in such a way that they re- relieve medical debt pennies on the dollar. And so with the gift that the young adults were able to give, they were able to give the equivalent of $370,000 in debt forgiveness for people in medical debt. And that kind of relief makes a material difference in people's lives. And so we could talk about ways in which we can give that would be good for the poor and those under-resourced, under-privileged communities. Another thing we could talk about today is we could talk about how when we give more of our resources away, it is, it's good for the local church, it's good for missionary organizations, it's good for nonprofits that are doing really good work in this world. You know, and, and many of these organizations, churches and uh, missionary organizations and nonprofits, they do depend upon the regular and generous giving of people like us in order for them to keep doing the very good work that that they were doing. And so we could talk today about how, you know, financial generosity, when we give more of our resources away, it's good for the poor and it's good for the church and it's good for those missionary organizations and it's good for nonprofits among us. But what I want to talk today about is not so much looking at generosity from any of those angles. What I want to argue today is that when we give, it is not just good for the poor and it's not just good for the church or for missionary organizations or for nonprofits, but when you engage in the regular practice of generous giving, it is good for your soul. It's good for you. You know, we've been in the series entitled Rhythms over the last few weeks, and what we've been arguing, what we've been saying is that genuine Christian transformation to actually be transformed into a person of goodness and love and spiritual depth and wisdom, it does not simply come as a result of getting more information in your head or of sitting in a pew or of simply wanting to become that kind of person. Rather, we are becoming the outcome of the regular habits and practices that we habitually give ourselves to day after day after day. And this is not to say that Christian growth and spiritual maturity comes as a result of mere human effort and good works, but rather it's to say that God uses these regular rhythms and practices by his spirit to transform us. Ruth Haley Barton put it like this. She said, I cannot transform myself or anyone else for that matter. Can I get a witness on that sentence? What I can do is create the conditions in which spiritual transformation can take place by developing and maintaining a rhythm of spiritual practices that keep me open and available to God. And so we've been talking about what those regular rhythms and practices are that make our own lives available to God and his transforming power in our lives. And today what I want to talk to you is about the regular rhythm, the discipline, the habit of giving. And so to do that, I want us to talk a little bit about the tithe. And to do that, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. 
if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you. You can turn there. You can just look on the screen if you want. But it is good to have those pages in your own fingers, I think. But look at what it says in Malachi chapter 3. This sounds a little bit like a pretty harsh text. And so we're going to read it. And I need to do a little bit of some explanation and background. And then I want to make a few observations. So he says this. Uh, so this is kind of a, the, the word of God comes to the children of Israel through the mouth of this fiery prophet named Malachi. And he says this, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Well, what do you mean? How have we robbed you, God? I didn't break into your house and steal anything from you. And he says this, in your tithes and in your contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. And then he says this, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. So they say, how is it that we are robbing you, God? And he says, well, here's how you're robbing me. You're robbing me because you are not giving your tithes and your offerings. And so he says, I need to talk to you about tithes and offerings. And we need to talk about tithes and offerings and what this is about. So to kind of understand what's going on here, I need to talk for about five minutes about the economic and social life of ancient Israel. So can we do that? You don't have a choice, do you? <laughs> You're like, why do you always ask us? Um, so what, what's fascinating is that when you study the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what you discover is that there was a very radically different, a very alternate vision of economic life that existed in the nation Israel that made her distinct from the surrounding nations and made her distinct from the nation we live in. And uh, it was different in a, in a wide variety of different ways, but there were numerous intentional structures and rhythms of generosity that was built into the very fabric of Israel's social and economic life. And what these structures, what these uh, rhythms would do is they would prevent Israel from engaging in the unlimited accumulation of wealth and uh, it would prevent them from engaging in unfettered consumption. It would prevent them from maximizing their own personal profit at the expense of their neighbor. And these practices, these rhythms of generosity would provide for the ministry of the temple as well as for the needs of the poor. And so, for example, uh, there's just a variety of the, these different laws. And so, for example, there was a law regarding when you gleaned your fields. And so this was an agrarian economy. And so their economics was in terms of, uh, you know, the crops you grew or your vineyards or the cattle that you owned or your oxen or whatever. And, um, and, and there was this law that when you gleaned your fields, you were not allowed to glean your field to the edges. So every time you engage in this rhythm of harvesting your fields, he said, you do not glean your field to the edges, but rather you leave the edges so that the poor can have access to food if they're in need. And then there was uh, laws regarding farming on the Sabbath. And so there was this law in uh, Exodus chapter 23 that was fascinating. You could work and you could harvest your lands for six years, but on the seventh year, you couldn't uh, harvest your own lands. You had to leave it open. And the text says, so that the poor could go in and eat, so that uh, your beasts can go in and eat. 
And so there was uh, regular rhythms every six years. The seventh year, they would open it up so people could eat uh, from those fields. And then there was this thing, and probably the most shocking of all of Israel's commands was, the, was regarding this thing called the year of Jubilee. And this is fascinating. So uh, over the course of 49 years, so by the way, the, the year of Jubilee was the 50th year. So you got to track with this one for a minute, but if you, it's just interesting. So... Um, what would happen is over the course of 49 years, uh, you could, everybody in Israel was, you know, different tribes have different plots of land, and then those plots of lands were divided into the different, tri- you know, family groups, and then individual families within those. And people would work their land over these 49 years, and sometimes, maybe because people became, uh, maybe some people were lazy, or uh, maybe they just had bad luck with the rains or whatever, but they would fall on hard times with their crops, and they wouldn't have any food on their plot of land, and they would have to give their land over to somebody who did have a lot of crops so they could feed them, and then their land would go there, and then, you know, they would get food that way, and so on and so forth. So this would happen over the course of 49 years. And so what would happen is over these 49 years, certain people who had land, they would grow it, they'd get a little bit more food, a little bit more wealth, and people who didn't have land, they would, you know, make themselves indentured servants. But then on the 50th year, there was a reset and all of the land would go back to the original owners of the land. And this would prevent the unlimited year after year accumulation of generational wealth and generational poverty. It was kind of like um, if you've ever played Monopoly, you've all played Monopoly, right? I mean, could you imagine if this is how you played Monopoly? Uh, If you set a timer for 50 minutes And for 49 minutes, you could accumulate as much property as you can and as much money as you can. And then on the 50th minute, you would have to give all of the property back. You'd be like, that'd be so lame. We wouldn't even be playing Monopoly, you know? And Israel wasn't playing the same game that everyone else was. They were playing a different kind of game. And the game they were playing was how can we organize our life and our in economics and our social life in a way that actually reflected the generosity of God and the fact that God is the owner over everything. So then, in addition to these laws, they had these regular ties. And so the nation of Israel had three ties. They had uh, first a priestly tithe. And so this is they would give 10% of their crops or of their farm animals or whatever. And that would go to the priesthood and the temple to kind of like maintain the temple ministry. And then there was a second kind of tithe. A lot of you guys don't know about this one, but it was, it was a party tithe. Do you guys know about a party tithe in Deuteronomy chapter 14? You were to store up your goods and resources, and then you would go on a, on a pilgrimage, a journey, basically like a big party vacation, where you would just enjoy and you would celebrate the goodness of God and all that he had provided for you. And if they were poor among you, they would be invited to the party and get to share in it with everyone else. And so there was a party tithe. And then there was a third tithe, which would be gathered up every three years, which would then be given to the poor, to the widow, to the orphans. And so if you do the math, that adds up to about 23.3% of their income would be given away every year. Or 10%, of course, would be stored up for that party tithe. So it's not really given away, right? All right, so you're tracking this. So what it looks like is happening in the text we're reading in Malachi is that Israel as a nation has stopped giving the tithe. And they have stopped 
being generous, and we don't know why. Uh, maybe it was that they felt like wherever they would give their money to would be mismanaged. And it, so it's always better to keep your money under your own management rather than trust somebody else to manage it. Or, or maybe, they, maybe, maybe they were just worried, but if I start giving this much of my income away, I might not have enough. I don't know if you know of any of these reasons why anybody familiar with these reasons? Well, this was the nation of Israel. They just weren't giving. And so the prophet Malachi comes to them and God confronts the people and he challenges them to engage in the rhythm of giving. He challenges them to get back into this practice that he gave to his people. And he says, get into this practice once again. And there's three observations I just want to make about what he says in this text when he exhorts them in this direction. Uh, Number one, the first observation, the first thing that we learn about tithing and about this practice is, uh, number one, tithing in ancient Israel was a regular rhythm. Again, look back at the text. He says, how have you robbed me? Well, in your tithes and in your contributions. And then he says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Now, what he's asking for is he's not asking here for guilt giving. You know, you've ever uh, been driving down the road and there's somebody who's looking at you, like you're, you're parked and this person is like a foot from your car and you just start to feel awkward and uncomfortable while you're sitting there. Anybody like you're, and they're looking at you and the sign is there and then you're like, oh, you know, and you maybe, or maybe you just ignore it and you look forward and you move on. That, that's not the kind of giving we're talking about here. It's not guilt giving. This here is regular giving. And actually in, uh, in the scriptures, we discover two different types of giving. On the one hand, there is what might be called uh, spontaneous giving. And spontaneous giving is when you see a need. And for whatever reason, it just becomes a burden on your heart and you're like, I want to meet that need. And some of you know what this is like. Some of you have the gift of generosity and there have been big needs, whether it's in nonprofits or maybe in our local church or whatever, and you just see the need or maybe a family in need and you just write a big check and you give it to them. And that's spontaneous giving. But there's a second type of giving and that's regular habitual and disciplined giving. And this kind of giving is percentage-based. That's what the tithe is. It means 10%. And it's regular. It happens in a regular rhythm. And it's disciplined. In order to do this, you need to, you need to be disciplined at doing this. And this is what uh, he is encouraging them into. He's saying, look, I am calling you into this regular habit and practice of giving. Now, I just want us to reflect on why this is important. You know, again, I I said in the beginning, the the, the reason why this is so important is, yeah, we could talk about the needs of the poor and the needs of the church and the needs of, of, you know, nonprofits or whatever. But there's something that happens in the life of ancient Israel, and there's something that happens in your life and my life when we actually engage in the regular practice of giving. You see, giving just doesn't do something with your money out there. When you give, it starts to do something with your money in here. And you remember what Jesus said? He put it like this. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
And you know, Jesus, he says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, seek first the kingdom of God. And what is that, what is that about? It's calling us to have our desires and our wants and the things that we're pursuing to reflect the values of Jesus and his kingdom. Values that revolve around sacrificial love and, and peaceableness and peacemaking and reconciliation and uh, generosity and justice. He says, have your whole heart and life pursue those things in your, in your homes and in your neighborhoods and in your place of employment and at school. He says, have your heart pursue those things. But what's the problem? Our hearts want to pursue other things. And I don't know about you, but my heart is full of all kinds of conflicted desires. Is yours? Aren't there competing desires that you have got all kinds? So how do you habituate your desires to go after the thing God cares about? Well, Jesus gives us a key. He says, put your treasure there. And where your treasure is, your heart will follow. And you know this to be the case. I mean, think if we went down this afternoon down to uh, the Santa Anita racetrack, and let's imagine we're there having lunch, and um, I don't know if you've ever been there. Have you been there in Santa Anita? Anyway, I'm sure, there's, I'm sure there's no gamblers in this church, not in this Christian church. But you know, if you, if, you, if you were watching the horse race, and our family actually went down there, and we watched the horse race one day, I didn't put any money down, and I watched the horses run, and I was like, that's great, you know? I didn't really care that much. But if I put all of my money on Seabiscuit, <laughs> and Seabiscuit was off, all of a sudden my heart goes after where my treasure is. And I'm watching it, and I'm wondering what's there. And when you start investing your resources with the poor and with causes that reflect justice or the mission of God to get the gospel out or the local church or, or any number of things, just caring for a local family in need, like your heart goes into those things. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so the regular habit and rhythm of giving actually does something in us. It begins to shape and mold and form us. And it does this in, in several different ways. I mean, um, I don't know about you, but I, I feel like the push-up is one of the most underrated exercises, don't you? Because the great thing about a push-up is it does so many things at once. It works so many different muscles. And the great thing about giving is it does so many things at once. Are you anxious and fearful? You're afraid there's not going to be enough. And so you are a saver. You view yourself as just being very financially safe, but you're, you're, all your friends think you're miserly. Like, and, 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 and money creates anxiety for you and worry for you. One of the, 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 the things you can do to work that out and actually become a person who more and more is free from the anxiety of money is to start giving your money away regularly at a rhythm. And what you discover over the course of 5, 10, 20, 50 years is I gave money away and I was fine. I'm going to be Okay. And so it, it roots out anxiety. You've seen this, right? Haven't you? Those of you who give, like, you know this. And then um, on the other hand, greed and acquisitiveness and the desire to have more, that's something we are being habituated to in our culture and society. How do you root that out so that you can actually become a, a disciple of Jesus who is being generous and cares about the needs of others? Well, again, you keep giving regularly. You keep investing in other things, and it does something to your heart, and you start to realize, like, I don't want more and more stuff. That's not where life is found. Life is found somewhere else, right? Right? 
And so number one, tithing, this regular giving, it is, uh, it's, a, it's a discipline. It's a rhythm. It's a habit that we are invited to engage in. Number two, failure, fail, failure to tithe is a theological issue. It's a theological problem. And notice back at the text. God says, will you rob, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. You say, well, how are we robbing you? I mean, just think about this. If God were to show up today and confront us and say, you're robbing me, and we're like, how are you robbing me? And he says, can we talk about your checking account? Can we talk about your bank account? And then he might start to reason with us. Who gave you what you have? You say, well, I got what I got through hard work and delayed gratification. Well, of course, many of you, that's why you are where you're at, and that's good. But who gave you the ability to work hard? Who gave you maybe that family system as a gift that taught you the value of hard work? Who allowed you to live in this country, in this time, in this place? These are all things you did not decide for yourself. Others decided these around you. And ultimately, behind all of what we have is God himself. God is the owner of everything. And so when we are not being generous with our resources, it becomes an issue with God. God has said, I have not blessed you with everything I've given you in order that it might only end with you. You are to be a conduit of my generosity into this world, and that is part of why I give you resources. Yeah, I want you to provide for your family, and I want you to pay for your kids' colleges, and I want you to be able to go out to lunch or dinner from time to time, and I want you to go on vacation. That's all good and fine, but it shouldn't end there. There's other things I want you to do with your resources, and those resources ultimately belong to me, and if you are not doing that, then that's an issue with me. You are robbing from me. Now, somebody says, well, what are you saying, Josh? Are you saying that Christians today need to tithe? I mean, isn't this Old Testament stuff? And I just want to point a couple things out. One is that tithing was instituted, or the first instances of tithing we see in the Old Testament come before God gave his law to his people. The first tither was Abraham. He gave to Melchizedek. After that, his grandson Jacob tithed of his resources, when you get to the New Testament, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees because he says, you are tithing of your mint and your cumin and your dill, and yet you are leaving the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy, undone. He says, look, if you have to make a choice between tithing of your mint and dill and cumin or showing your neighbor mercy and kindness, please choose kindness every day of the week. But Jesus says, don't make that choice. He says, those other things, you ought to have done the other thing. Well, you, I mean, you ought to show love while not leaving the tithe of the mint, dill, and cumin undone. And so I think there's a good case to be made for there to be a practice in our own life of giving a percentage of our income away. Now, I know the arguments in your head. You think, well, I just, I don't, I, I can't do that. I just can't do that. And I know we're all in a wide variety of financial places, and God knows all of that, and he is gracious to you on all of that. And some of you, you got yourself in debt over your head, and you're, but here's what I'd like to challenge you with, is just take the next step in generosity. Maybe you're like, 10, 10%, that I can't get there. Well, how about just 1%? How about just taking it and just seeing what God will do in your life? And I just challenge you, give, give 2% more away this year. Give 10% away and see if you are any less happy than you are right now. Like, and this is going to actually lead us to our third point, so I better not go there. 
So number two, tithing or failure to tithe is a theological problem. Uh, Number three, and this is kind of the thing that this text emphasizes, is tithing is an invitation from God. And let me just say one more thing on the tithe, can I? Is that okay? So when I was, when I was in high school, uh, you know, I, I became a Christian when I was in high school, and I, I had a job at a local surf shop, and I didn't make much money. I think minimum wage at that time was $7.25 an hour, which to me seemed like a good bit of money, I guess. And I started tithing back when I was uh, making very little money. And I'll just tell you, you, you might think, like, if, if, if only I had more, then I would tithe. It's just the stats don't bear that out. Statistically, people who make, mo- money, who make less money, on average, give a larger percentage of their income than people who make more money. I mean, the reality is, is that almost all of us, the more money we make, the more money we what? Spend. And we just increase our standard of living. And so it's actually easier, and I commend, you know, the young adults, I'm looking at some of our young adults in the back, but like I I commend them for beginning this practice now because it makes it easier as life goes on because as your income grows, if you just commit to this discipline, like, you know, it makes it easier. But if you're you're just beginning, you know, and you came in here and God has blessed you with $200,000 a year worth of income and you've never tithed and you're like, oh my gosh, what could I do with $20,000? And you could do a lot, it's true. But just see what happens. You know, I guarantee you won't be less happy if you give more of your resources away. And this is the third point. Tithing is an invitation. It's an invitation to what? It's an invitation to experience the provision and the generosity of God. Look at what it says in the text. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Why? So that you can be more miserable. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Why? Well, because God's like, I'm poor and my work's not going to get done if you don't give. No. And by the way, I'm not talking about this issue because we're in some great financial need. God has provided for us graciously as a church. And this year we finished well because of so many of your generosity. He doesn't doesn't go there. He's not like, well, because the priests and the temple and because of me, I'm going to... He says, give, and listen to the reason why. He says, bring it in. Bring in the storehouse, the tithe into uh, the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby, he says this, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. You know, Jesus, when he was tempted in the wilderness, told Satan, he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And all through the scripture, I mean, we are taught not to test God. But here is one place where God himself says, test me. And he says, test me because he knows that we need to test him. Because almost all of us are like, I don't trust you. I don't trust you on this one. So he says, well, just test it out. Test it out. Give more of your resources away and you just see whether or not you don't experience a greater degree of my blessing. And what is it that you stand to experience? Like, what is he inviting you to experience more of? He's inviting you to experience more of his own generosity and his own blessing and his own provision. 
He says, when you open up your hands more and more like this to give your stuff away, you are at the same time opening up your hands more and more to receive from God. And many of you know this. I, you know, just as, you know, in my, in my, the smallest of ways, as an 18-year-old, you know, punk surfer kid, when I was in high school and started giving, you know, regularly, and I remember at one point in time, I had in my head, I wasn't going to buy myself any, you know, new clothes and stuff like this. And I, I kind of, I don't know, in my own little way, you know, as a fairly like upper middle class Southern California kid, I was trying to like live into this journey of following Jesus and even in that place where I was at, as insignificant as it was, I witnessed God's provision in my life. Strangely, friends would show up with a bag of, of, of you know, they got sponsored by somebody surfing and they would come and give me a bag of clothes or something. And I just began to, in weird ways, experience the generosity of God. And I've experienced that all the way through my life. And there are so many of you that could bear witness to that same story, right? I mean, many of you in this room are far more of an example of generosity than I am. And you could bear witness to the goodness of God, amen? The grace of God, those days where you didn't know where the check was gonna come from, and then something showed up, you know, and God provided. And, and there, there was strangely the apartment that was cheaper than market value or the house that was under market value or whatever it was. And you're just like, how did this happen? And, and you might say, well, maybe that would have happened anyway. And maybe it would have. Maybe it would have. And if it would have happened anyway and you wouldn't have given God thanks for it, then you would have been robbing God of the praise and glory he is due because of his generous provision in your life. And when we're regularly giving, it helps us open our eyes and look for the provision and the goodness of God and in experience his provision, experience greater degrees of joy. So he says, yeah, give, he says, so that, he says, I invite you into this practice so that you can experience more of my goodness. But secondly, you don't only experience more of God's provision and God's generosity. When you start to give, you actually experience more of his joy in your life. Listen to what he says next. He says, he says, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not bear fruit, says the Lord. He says this, then all nations will call you blessed. You know, in the, um, in the translation that I have of this text by the great Hebrew scholar Robert Alter, he translates this phrase, he says, and, and all nations will look at you and they will say, oh, how happy is that nation. And then he says this, then all nations will call you happy for you will be a land of delight. Do you know what Eden was back in the, the garden? That word Eden means delight. And he says, it's like you are going to experience more of life as it was always intended to be lived. Human beings were not intended to take all of their resources and spend them on themselves. We were not intended to only live lives and be our sole provider. We were always intended to live interdependent lives on one another and share what we have with one another and then depend upon the goodness of God and the provision of God. This is part of our very humanity. And when we live into that through regular disciplined giving, you actually start to experience a greater degree of joy and satisfaction and contentment in life. And all of the research on this issue bears this statement out. You know, it's interesting, over the last decade or so, there's just been dozens and dozens of studies done on the science of generosity, 
There's a, a famous study that's done uh, by the University of Notre Dame called the Generosity Project. Uh, there's another uh, initiative up at UC Berkeley. They have a, um, it's the science or the, something, it's the science of happiness center or something like that, human well-being. But through these organizations, they've, they've done dozens and dozens of studies. And again and again and again, they find the same results. The people who find greater degrees of job satisfaction, higher levels of meaning, uh, greater experience of joy and contentment in their relationships, greater happiness in general in life are always in these studies the people who give more. And uh, one of the, the a sociologists from Notre Dame who's overseen these studies, he wrote a book on this. He put it like this. He said, rather than leaving generous people on the short end of the unequal bargain, Rather than leaving generous people, the people who give on the short end of an unequal bargain, I'm giving it, but they're not, and this is so bad for me, right? He says, rather than that happening, practices of generosity are actually likely instead to provide generous givers with essential goods in life, happiness, health, and purpose, which money and time themselves simply cannot buy. That is an empirical fact well worth noting. It's not just an empirical fact, it is a spiritual truth. That when we live into greater and greater degrees of generosity, that we experience greater degrees of joy and contentment, and we have a greater experience of God himself and his provision and his generosity in our life. And so the question is, is what is the next step you need to take? Now, again, I know we're all not in the same place. And I, I, don't, I, I never preach a sermon like this in hopes of condemning or guilting you in anything. You know, the Bible says God loves a joyful giver. And sometimes it does take time to work into the, the practice until you start finding joy in it. But where is the place you need to begin? You know, maybe it's just to, to give a percent away. Maybe it's to take where you're at. Maybe you need to, you need to become a tither. You're like, I, I'm going to commit to 10% for a year, and I'm just going to test God and see what happens. Or maybe you need to go beyond that and just go, because of the means that God has given you, you just need to do some radical stuff with your resources and see if there is commensurate radical joy that accompanies that radical generosity. So what is the next step you need to take? I would encourage you to decide and then to disclose your decision to somebody you love. Because usually good feelings themselves alone, thinking like, yes, that's true. Yes, I need to do something. It's usually just not enough, is it? And so disclose it and then move, act. Now, we're going to close today by sharing together in the Lord's Supper and I think one of the reasons why generosity is at the heart of what it means to be human is because we are created in the image of God. And God, in his very nature, is generous. And actually, the act that brings our own healing and reconciliation is a radical act of God's generosity. 
In 2 Corinthians, Paul puts it like this. He says, you know the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty, you might become rich. And it is this generosity that heals us and frees us. And today when we share together in the Lord's Supper, I just want you to pause before you share in these elements and recognize that the teaching today is not, it's not in any way about guilting you to do something. It's about reminding you of who God is and who you are. God is generous and you're a recipient of God's generosity. And you live, you live more into your humanity the more you live into practices of generosity. This time I wanna invite our band to come up. If you didn't receive the bread and the cup when you walked in and you would like to participate with us in this practice, would you just lift up your hand and Kathy and Carol will go ahead and make sure that you get the bread and the cup. And I'm gonna ask that as the band sings or leads us in this next song, that you would prepare the elements and just pause there and recognize that before you ever open your hands to give, you had to open your hands to receive from God's generosity and he's given it to you in abundance. And then hold on to it and then I'll come back up and I'll lead us in partaking together. But let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves that because of your generosity and love, you pursued us, you gave everything away, and you became nothing, so that through that radical act of generosity, we might share in your everything. God, we do pray that you would sink your generosity deep into our hearts, and that you would break our cycles of imagined scarcity and greed, and that you would enable us to be people who live with open hands. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.